You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, it is my honor to say hello to you and welcome you into this place. It's a delight to worship God with you. And I, I also want not only to thank all of us who are here, but to thank many of you who are watching online. And you know, in the last week, I received a bunch of notes from folks just saying, thank you, we're still watching, we appreciate what you're doing, and, uh, and I know that, that you feel that as well. And so we want those of you that are online to know that we are with you as much as you are with us. Well, my mom grew up in Albuquerque, and as many of you know, she learned to drive just up the way on Juan Tabo when it was a dirt road. Now, her family eventually made their way where she had to brave the streets of Las Vegas, Nevada, way before the Strip was much more than a blip in that small little town that's huge now. Now, Dad, Dad learned to drive in some of the flattest terrain in the world, southwestern Oklahoma. And he, for the rest of his life, with that town that was so laid out on grids, judged every other town by it. It had crooked roads, and it wasn't as organized, as easily known north and south as was his home in Altus, Oklahoma. Well, Donna, she grew up driving also in the country, but in the hill country of Texas, where you'd get some bends and some turns, but less traffic and higher speeds. For me, I grew up driving in Denver, where you've got the mountains. And so, yes, the streets were laid out straight and true, running the full length of the Denver Metroplex even today. But if it was daytime, I always knew exactly where I was because of those mountains. So it's been pretty easy for me to make the shift to mountains in the, in the east with Albuquerque, right? I can still find my way around by those mountains. You know me. You know how much I love the mountains. I just, I love being able to go up above the crowds, above the smog, away from the concrete, away from the noise and the traffic, and be just a little bit closer to God. It's, it's kind of a place where what we can grasp onto meets what we can't grasp onto. Where the rock-hard evidence of the earth that we walk on reaches us up to the heavens, the ever-changing skies, the weather that swirls around us. And we have been making our way to the mountain that we finally came to last week, preparing ourselves, like the people of God, to meet God. And, you know, in this little trailhead where the mountain was shaking and the earth was quaking and smoke had covered the mountain, frankly, it's a trailhead. I might just go back to the car, try another mountain. But the people of God have been washing their clothes and getting themselves ready to actually hear and experience God. In this series, Trust is is Greater Than or Equal to Our Fear, we've been dealing with this idea of fear, specifically the fear of God, and letting that fear be understood more and more and give way to trust. And that's an important journey to make. As we looked last week, we we realize that sometimes we put our trust in things that shouldn't be trusted in. 
where we put our trust in our ability to follow the rules rather than following God. Or we forget that what God has been up to and what God has done is to establish relationship for us, to place us down right in the middle of a relationship with him. And the rules become a gift, a guidance for how we can follow God. But here, with the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom, it's been something of, a, of an interesting experience in Exodus. You think you need a little recap of how fear has popped up in Exodus. Perhaps you remember the first place where Moses comes upon a bush that's a fire, it's a blaze. It's full of the presence of God, yet unconsumed. And he falls down on his face terrified in Exodus chapter 3. Perhaps you remember the terror of the people of God as they came up against the Red Sea, running from their captors, their former slave owners. And they said, oh, if only we were already dead. And Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand still. Just watch. Watch the deliverance that God is going to provide for you. And then Moses, in chapter, uh, 20, chapter 18, he is organizing the leaders, and he is instructed by uh, his, his father-in-law Jethro, choose only people that fear God to be leaders. And as leaders, that's very important. Don't choose folks that do not respect the primary leadership of the Almighty God. And here, in Exodus 20, we get the next and the final place where fear shows up, where the people are terrified and afraid to witness what they see on the mountain, to hear the thundering voice of God, to see all the lightning and the smoke and this appearance of fire. And they are told not to be afraid, that God only wants to test them, to try them, to prove them true. Well, here, let's take a look at these words from Exodus chapter 20. You're welcome to join me standing if you need a little stretch. This is in Exodus 20, and I'm going to start in verse 1. God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth or that is under the water. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of the parents to the third, to the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a holy day, a Sabbath to, your, to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. 
honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people witness the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. And then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near into the darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, I mean, what a list here. It kind of sounds like the no fun rules. You know, the thou shalt not list, all these do's and don'ts. And it would be easy to take each one, but I'm kind of struck by the sweeping nature of this whole scene and all of these ten words taken together. Because we find a story of how we might deal with God and how we might deal with human beings. A story, did you notice how it starts in story, of a God who has act in deliverance, in rescue, in provision for his people. That's what he wants them to know first and foremost is who he is. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. That's what God's name Yahweh means. The name spoken to Moses at the burning bush, a name that often remains unspoken to be treated in sacredness. And so we get this list, this list from a God who made promises first to Abraham and then 600 years later pronounces his name and makes promises to Moses that it's not just going to be a personal experience of God, he's going to come back and know God here on this mountain with a group of people led out of Egyptian slavery. So we get these lists. The first four of these deal all with God. Do not have any other gods before me, besides me. Don't place anything in front of me. I'm your God. I'm the one God. I'm the only God for you. Of course, there are other allegiances, other gods out there, but I'm yours. Do not try to make an image, an idol, anything else to worship other than God. It's our desire sometimes to take physical things and manifest and conjure up the very presence of the eternal. God says, don't take my name and misuse it. Here we quickly think of swearing or or throwing God's name into a conversation or the little slip where we use God's name. But it's also about just trying to use God's name to add weight to what you're saying, of what God told you or what God is promising to do for you. And the fourth one, All of these about God is about rest, Sabbath rest, something that's embedded into creation. 
That God himself rested on the seventh day. That God invites us not to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, but to find rest each day and for sure on the seventh day to rest. The final six are all about people. And you probably notice that, where you start out with your parents, those that have gone before you, those that have given you life. You don't have to own all of the mean things that they've said or done. You don't have to copy or imitate their way of life. No, that's not what it's saying. You don't have to bend over backwards, but you have to honor them. You have to respect that you did not create yourself. You didn't come from nothing. You came from somewhere. And that's worth honoring your parents because that's an honoring of God. Don'ts. All the don'ts start. Do not kill in anger. When your will gets violated, don't force your way into an argument, into a situation. Or eight, do not commit adultery. Sex and sexual intimacy is meant inside of marriage, inside of covenant made before God. So don't take it lightly. And then eight, well, that's commit adultery is eight. Number nine, don't take things. Don't take people, don't take ideas, don't take possessions, don't take from other people. And then finally, do not covet. Don't covet people, don't covet things. What others have, you don't long for. Okay, deep breath. There they all are, the full sweep of them. What are we supposed to do with them? What do we do with these commands? Well, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe every word of the Bible? Yes. Well, I mean, do you believe that these should be posted in public places? Well, in fact, they are. You can go to the U.S. Supreme Court and they're there. And there's been times when people have promoted, hey, we need to put the Ten Commandments everywhere. Well, I think, why do we stop there? Why don't we publish chapter 20 all the way through chapter 31 of commands? Well, wait a second, that might get a little iffy. I mean, do you know all the commands that are in there? There's some uncomfortable things that are in Exodus, even in chapter 21, where slavery seems endorsed, where you're supposed to, it's treatment of your slaves, of what you're supposed to do. Like if a man comes in and he's single and he's your slave, after six years you set him free. If he's married, he gets to take his wife. If he's single, he goes on his own. These are things that weren't given to other slaves at this time, right? It's a status that's raised up to let them free. But then you get weird things like if the owner gives the man a wife and he has children, the wife and the children are the masters. Well, that's a little more difficult, right? When we claim to, to endorse all, every single word, it's harder. So what are we supposed to do with these strange commandments, these that get skipped over during VBS, these that are difficult? I want us to come back to the big picture that's here because there is something very valuable. Because rather than dropping a stone on someone's head, there are practices here that guide us. And so I want to lead us into the how-to here. First thing that I want you to hear 
is that God's relationship of love is what first enables us to love God and to love our neighbor. So God's primary action of reaching out in love is what allows us to do these things. And he makes promises in the gift of of how he's going to take care of us and how he's going to bless us. And the law is given as such a gift, a relationship. Now it's going to happen. We will break these. We will make mistakes. These are kind of just about who we are. We make errors and we make mistakes. But when we, when we see what's embedded in these commands, we find that it's a message about how to put God first. And yet still, even with contemporary ears, we hear this and we hear a lot of judgment or shame or fear. And we think, I don't know if I can follow these things. And we hear God saying, I am a jealous God. I command and demand loyalty. And I will punish multiple generations for those who reject me. Well, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think whenever we hear the word punish, we hear God being vengeful. And I think maybe it would be better for us to hear consequences. When God points us up the mountain of the Ten Commandments, he lays out these laws as gifts, as guidance. And whenever we choose to follow God, whenever we choose to walk in God's path, we receive the benefits of following after God. If we choose not to, then we reap the consequences. I mean, rather than think about God on the mountain zapping us when we do something wrong, because we're going to make mistakes, I think of this more as God on the mountain saying, look, if you take this path, I can't protect you from what happens next. The consequences of the choices that we make in our life can't, can't, can't be corralled or eliminated. While God can take things and make them good, the wounds stay there. The scars stay there. The limp is still present. And I hear this as God saying, look, if you go that way, you will get hurt and other people will get hurt. If you look closely, there's great mercy. Did you see verse 6? We hear God's vengeance of, well, we're going to have these consequences for multiple generations, and that sounds terrible and like the zapping God. But God says, I will be merciful to the thousandth of generations. We can't even really tell you what that number looks like. Thousands upon thousands. So God's desire is to do good more than to do evil. And I, I've found this to be true. I don't know about you. Evil and bad is never as bad as good is good. The bad things that come from the negative things that we've done or said, they're never as bad as the goodness that comes from good actions that we do. That has been true for my whole life. And Jesus provides summary of this. He points to this, that God is to be loved and we're to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Matthew 22, Luke 10, Mark 12. Over and over, Jesus points to this summary. So, first of all, we learn that God's relationship is what first establishes this ability for us to love God and to love our neighbor. Well, the second thing that I want us to see is to point out the last commandment and the first commandment. Because I think these two kind of bring together some truth that might help us and understand all of the commandments. 
and to order our lives even today. The first commandment, I'm the Lord your God, right? Have no other gods before me. God is commanding complete and total loyalty. And then the last commandment, do not covet. Covet. Now, there is a word that doesn't show up in school much. We don't have a high school class on the morality of how you can not covet. It's just not a familiar word to us. And yet, our dollar, our economy, our advertising, our social media is all built on finely tuned algorithms to prompt us to covet, to desire. And that's what coveting is. It's a strong, intense yearning for something, for someone, for almost anything other than God. That's what our economy is built on. That's what our school is built on. To find that one achievement, that one person that's going to fulfill all of your desires. And I think what we learn is that our desires are not always the best masters. If you take coveting and you look backwards through the last five, it kind of summarizes them all. Whenever we lie, we're coming out of a position of wanting people to like us or wanting to have some source of control over someone or not be proven wrong. It's kind of like we're stretching the spandex fiber of cloth over the fat of our desire, trying to cover things up with a lie. When we steal, we're taking from someone that we feel justified. They don't appreciate it. They don't need it. They won't miss it. They don't deserve it. I deserve it more. It's a coveting. It's a desire to have something that someone else has. When we don't pay attention to our parents, when we don't give time to them or honor to them, it's that my time is more important. I value who I am. When we take somebody else's spouse or when we take a life, we're demeaning the significance of other people and other relationship and lifting ourselves up. This coveting is like the vice that slithers into almost all that we do, a desire that seizes us and holds us fast. Well, with God, we're wanting to know that He is the only one that we desire. And all these other gods that we might have, that we might try to satisfy by breaking some of these commandments, are going to be empty. Things that we use to fill ourselves up, if we give ourselves fully over to them, they will destroy us. From sex to sugar, take drinks, you know, if you want an alcoholic beverage or a soda or a milkshake. If you take any of those, doesn't matter which one, too extreme, it becomes a very, very bad master. And it will destroy your body and your life. Our desires, I think what we learn from the Ten Commandments, is that all of our desires are not good and not meant to be fully fulfilled. Does that make sense? Does that help us see beyond the 4,000 years of history here? Does that help us to see something a little deeper? Brings us to a third thing. That God's presence is known here on the mountain. And God's presence is not meant to to terrify us, but to train us, to prepare us, to prove us, to make us better people. It's about not just carving commands into stone, 
because these didn't come in stone. Did you notice that? No tablets of stone yet. We don't get them yet. The people get to hear them as words, words that they don't even want to hear because it's too overpowering for them. So we don't have to think about the Ten Commands as lines that we're trying to cross or get as close to as we can. No, this is about training, learning what life looks like when we follow this path. It's kind of like learning to drive. It was helpful for me to look and to see where the mountain was. There were times when I could get lost, but I could know where I was in relationship. I think that's how the Ten Commandments function. They orient us. Are we fully loving God? Are we fully loving our neighbor? And when we have that point of orientation, we'll stop trying to worry if we've crossed the line, and we'll be able to stay more in our lane. We'll be able to take care of other people, to live for the good of our neighbors. We'll organize ourselves around this one loyalty, those first commands, that God is our God. That all of our loyalty, all of our desire is to be focused on God and God alone. If you're looking for a unique way to stand out in this world, if you want to be different from other people, try this. Try putting God as the number one allegiance in your life. You will stand out because you will not be driven to harm people, to steal from people, to take from people. Because in many ways, these Ten Commands almost are like a game plan for how you get ahead in life. Look at any of our leaders in the public light. They break all of these regularly and do so with pride and with no thought of anyone else. Whenever we orient ourselves on the life of God, whenever God becomes our loyalty, it changes us. If you need something to take it even more practical for you, one of the places that when I talk to people privately that I point them is Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, first 11, you can even go to the first 16 verses, you find this kind of ordering present. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is. Get your focus beyond yourself, beyond your own desire, beyond what you think is best for you, and set it on God. That's in verse 1 and verse 2. Verses 3, verses 5, it talks about letting go of our desires, killing them, putting them to death, not letting them have a louder voice than they should have in our life. And then in verse 10, it talks about being united to Christ, being renewed in Christ, because Christ is all. Jesus Christ is all and in all. So these Ten Commands, I think they provide some amazing orientation for us. Orientation to the mountain. Orientation that comes from words. Words spoken from God who demands our allegiance, that there is one God. A God that in great wisdom points us to look at our desires and to not be dictated by those desires. That they matter and they will control us. And God speaks these ten words to communicate His presence, a presence that can train and teach people, that will prepare them to have a center of their life that's bigger than themselves. It teaches us even that our desires, while present and there and pulling us in a lot of directions, and something that we have to attend to, are not our master. They're not our primary voice. 
And by taking it in this way, we are able to combine theology, words from God, with ethics, with how we actually live in our lives. And there's great good news in this for me. To know that God is the one who delivers me. To know that God loves us and that God wants to live in us and that God first gives us his ultimate allegiance. How crazy is that? What kind of ruler is this that God would birth all of this in relationship? What he asks for from us in return is that God will be our loyalty. And when you do that, you're in for a really good life. Not a perfect life, not one without mistakes, but a good life that orders your desires. Let's pray. God, your presence is real. And we thank you for your activity in this world. We thank you for the ways that you've come on this mountain with Moses and the people. Words that we still talk about, we still post everywhere. Ways that you've come through Jesus Christ. And so we pray today that, that Christ will take more and more a firm hold of our hearts. That our desires will be acknowledged but surrendered to you that we will follow you as our ultimate allegiance, the one who has our best interest. May we be like the Israelites, watching and waiting for the deliverance that you will offer us in our own life. We pray all this in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and eternally. Amen.